Listen to the reading of God's word from 1 Chronicles chapter 9. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Now the first to dwell again in their possessions in their cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. And some of the people of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh lived in Jerusalem. Utai, the son of Amadhud, son of Omri, son of Imri, son of Bani, the sons of Perez, the, sons, the son of Judah. And of the Shalonites, Azariah, the son the firstborn and his sons of the sons of Zerah Jeuel and their kinsmen 690 of the Benjaminites Salu the son of Meshulam son of Hodaviah son of Hasunah Ibnaiah the son of Jeroham Ela the son of Uzi son of Mikri and Meshulam the son of Septatiah, son of Reuel, son of Ibnaja. And their kinsmen, according to their generations, 956, all these were heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses. Of the priests, Jedediah, Jehorabin, Jachin. And Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zodak, Zadak, son of Miraoth, son of Ahitub, the chief officer of the house of God. And Adaiah, the son of Jeroham, son of Pasher, son of Malchajam, and Mesai, the son of Adael, son of Jezra, son of Meshulam, son of Meshemith, son of Emer. Besides their kinsmen, heads of their father's houses, 1,760 mighty men for the work of the service of the house of God. Of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashob, son of Azrakam, son of Hashabiah, the sons of Merarah, and Babakar, Haresh, Galal, and Mataniah, the son of Micah, son of Zichrai, son of Asaph, and Obadiah, the son of Shemaiah, son of Gela, son of Jeduthun, and Berechiah, the son of Asa, son of Elkanah, who lived in the villages of the Nepophetites. The gatekeepers were Shalom, Akub, Talum, Ahiman, and their kinsmen. Shalom was the chief. Until then, they were in the king's gate on the east side as, gate, as the gatekeepers of the camps of the Levites. Shalom, the son of Korah, son of Abiasaph, son of Korah, and his kinsmen of his father's house, the Korahites, were in charge of the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tent 
as their fathers had been in charge of the camp of the Lord, keepers of the entrance. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, was the chief officer over them in time past. The Lord was with him. Zechariah, the son of Meshalimiah, uh, was was gatekeeper at the entrance of the tent of meeting. All these who were chosen as gatekeepers at the thresholds were 212. They were enrolled by genealogies in their villages. David and Samuel, the seer, established them in their office of trust. So they and their sons were in charge of the gates of the house of the Lord, that is, the house of the tent as guards. The gatekeepers were on the four sides, east, west, north, and south. And their kinsmen who were in their villages were obligated to come in every seven days in turn to be with these. For the four chief gatekeepers, who were Levites, were entrusted to be over the chambers of the treasures of the house of God. And they lodged around the house of God, for on them lay the duty of watching, and they had charge of opening it every morning. Some of them had charge of the utensils of service, for they were, in, were required to count them when they were brought in and taken out. Others of them were appointed over the furniture and over all the holy utensils, also over the fine flour, the wine, the oil, the incense, and the spices. Others of the sons of the priests prepared the mixing of the spices. And Mattathiah, one of the Levites, the firstborn of Shalom, the Korahite, was entrusted with making the flat cakes. Also, some of their kinsmen of the Kohathites had charge of the showbread and prepared it every Sabbath. Now these, the singers, the heads of fathers' houses of the Levites, were in the, were in the chambers of the temple, free from other service, for they were on duty day and night. These were the heads of fathers' houses of the Levites, according to their generations, leaders. They lived in Jerusalem. Thanks be to God. Word of the Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you know, sometimes there are certain passages that we struggle with. Uh, Peter actually said about some of Paul's writings that they were hard to understand. But Paul also says that through endurance and patience and steadfast engagement in the scriptures, we shall have encouragement and hope. And so hopefully you will uh, experience that encouragement and hope and refreshment uh, in this gospel according to Chronicles. 
uh, we've launched that series. But we struggle also with our identity. Uh, we struggle with knowing who we are and what we should be about in our lives. Uh, in the movie Born Identity, Matt Damon plays Jason Bourne, a CIA agent who has suffered amnesia and is trying to figure out just exactly who he is. In the mountains of Switzerland, Jason hitched a ride with uh, a young woman by the name of Marie to ride to Germany. And he was running from the police, but he wasn't sure why. He tries to keep quiet about his situation until his, the frustration overwhelms him. And finally, in response to her asking a simple question, he turns to her and he desperately says, I don't know who I am or where I am going. At a truck stop along the snowy highway, Bourne starts to recount what little he knows about himself to her, reaching for clues to who he is. Bourne asks, who has a safety deposit box full of money and six passports and a gun? I come in here, and the first thing I'm doing is I'm looking for an exit. Marie says, I see an exit sign too, but I'm not worried. Bourne replies with increased desperation, I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half a mile before my hands start to shake. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? And many of us are running with increased desperation and anxiety and trying to figure out who we are and what we're called to. The fact is you will only find your true identity, your true self, and your true calling by going back to the beginning, by going back to your origins, by going back to your roots to God who is in the beginning and finding out who you are in him and where you fit in his story. Welcome to the Gospel According to Chronicles. Uh, through the Chronicler, God reveals and reaffirms and reorients and reestablishes the identity of his disoriented, dislocated, and deported people as he calls them back to himself and back to worship. You see, the Chronicles was written to the returned exiled people of God whose city and temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 588 B.C., who were deported as a small surviving remnant to Babylon. As God predicted, they remained in captivity, enslavement for 70 years, but then in God's mercy, he moved the heart of King Cyrus, king of Persia, to send the Israelites back to their homeland to settle down and to rebuild the temple and to worship their God. Now, it's not as if the Israelites were a free people. Their king was still King Cyrus, but they could settle in their homes and they could worship their own God as long as they paid the oppressive taxes. <laughs> And that was a policy that kings at that time did. They wanted to reestablish those that they conquered so that they could be productive and help provide wealth for their kingdom. In some sense, we are like that, living in a Babylonian captivity, but we have the opportunity to worship 
and to live in so much freedom. The assignment and the challenge of the chronicler was how to help this disoriented, this dislocated, often discouraged people to find hope and to relearn who they are and to know their calling in God's story. In this ninth chapter, the chronicler shows them that their identity is found in being a worshiping people of God. And here he shows them the importance of worshiping persons, the centrality of worship, and the essentials for worshiping God. We don't have time to address all the issues in these 34 verses, but I would like to highlight some things that have encouraged me. We see the importance of worshiping persons, and he opens, he says, so all Israel was recorded in the genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings. And now, when he says all Israel, he's actually referring to all of the genealogies that he has just laid out for nine chapters. Uh, and this is the genealogies of the tribes of Israel, uh, actually starting with Adam and then moving through Noah and moving through Abraham and then Isaac and the tribes uh, to show all the way down to where the chronicler lived at that time of, of uh, history and to show them that they still are the people of God and they still retain a central place in God's purposes in the world and, and in humanity. They're important. They're special. Even though they've been enslaved, they've been in bondage for these 70 years, they are still a central people to God's purposes on the earth. Last week, Dr. Kim shared with us from 1 Peter to remind us that in Christ we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, while Chronicles helps us to unpack exactly what that means. But God is about restoring the full house of his people. And so what we find when he says all Israel, he's also recognizing that all of the tribes have now come back to Jerusalem, back to this holy land to be part of his people. And for 500 years, Judah, the southern part of Israel and northern Israel had been in a civil war for about 500 years. And now... After the captivity, as the people return, they are being reunited as the people of God. God is about restoring what's been broken. God's about reconciling relationships that have been divided. And so we find here that there are no lost tribes uh, for God. And, and, but what I want to pause with you about is to realize that God took nine chapters to name multitudes of individuals, people, name by name. It may make our eyes glaze over. It might bore us to tears, and we're tempted to quickly move on. And by the way, I'm really grateful for Joel and for Carol and their reading of all of those names. And they had perfect Hebrew as they said it. But, you know... In the naming of names, the individual name, God is communicating something. We might get bored in reading all those names, but 
if it was a family member listed in there, or a friend that you saw listed in there, or possibly your own name, it would take on a whole nother dimension, would it not? Uh, this past month, my wife and I had the pleasure of going to London to visit, actually, a former elder here, Jeff and Misan Lu, and uh, we stopped in Greenwich uh, to, to, uh, to see this famous sailing vessel called the Cuddy Sark. The Cuddy Sark uh, was a famous British clipper ship built in 1869. It was like one of the fastest uh, ships, and uh, it really transformed uh, a coffee-drinking people to a tea-drinking people in England. Uh, but on that ship, Maria has got a letter uh, saved from her great-grandfather who came over from London on the, on the Cuddy Sark uh, to, to, to New York in 1880. Uh, uh, and she gets to the, the desk where the guide is, and she tells him that my, I, it was my understanding my, my great-grandfather came. And so he pulls out this book that has all the records of all of the people that came on the Cuddy Sark. And lo and behold, there's her great-grandfather, C.A. Dawkins, 1858, started from London. Uh, he was A.B. A.B. means an able seaman. Uh, to, they had to have at least two years of experience. And, uh, but, you know, looking at that name, and that's connected to Maria, I realized that, wow, this is amazing. How many people walk into a museum of a famous ship and find the name of a great-grandparent or even a relative. I, and it felt pretty, uh, pretty, pretty amazing. But you know, the most important book to make sure that your name is in is the book of life. In Revelation chapter 3, uh, writing to the church of Sardis concerning the believing faithful, it says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Isn't that amazing to think that your name is going to be confessed by Jesus before his Father and before angels as precious, as his child, as his beloved son or beloved daughter, you, you are important, your name is important, and in Christ, your name will live on. Now, you might not like your name. You might want a different name. Well, God will take care of that, too. In Revelation 3, he says, he says of this person who conquers, he says, Never shall he go out of this, of this temple, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my, new, and my own new name. So you'll get a new name. You're going to have a new name. But your particular name is very precious to God. You need to know that God values your name because he values you. He values you individually. Yes, he values many others. Yes, he has a whole bride of other believers. He has a whole kingdom of people. But he values and esteems you in Christ and he loves you very personally and he knows your name and John tells John 10 tells us he calls you 
by name. He wants a relationship with you. C.S. Lewis uh, mentioned about the nature of God's infinity. He says, almost certainly God is not in time. He has infinity in which to listen to the split-second prayer put up by a pilot as the plane crashes in flames. God has infinite attention, infinite leisure to spare for each one of us. He doesn't have to take us in the line. You're as much alone with him as if you were the only thing he'd ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually just as much as if you had been the only man, the only woman in the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God, a Savior, Jesus Christ, has that kind of passionate love and affection for you, that he comes to you, that he calls you by name, he wants fellowship with you, that you are special to him? If you struggle with that, then just read the nine chapters of 1 Chronicles. God spent nine chapters naming individuals, people that he loves people that are part of his kingdom. And so God values the person, the individual. He values you, but there is something more specific in the focus here of the Chronicle. Uh, we find that he has an agenda that, besides highlighting the history of God's chosen people through Adam and Noah and Abraham and the tribes, that there is a centering, there is a focus that's happening in Chronicles, and it's the focus on worship. Uh, it moves into the ninth chapter with an emphasis on the tribe of Judah, of Benjamin, and the Levites. And this was the people that were in and around Jerusalem. And so what we see here, there's this emphasis on the worship of God in Jerusalem and on the worshiping people of God. And so we see the centrality of the worshiping, uh, on, on, on worshiping God. And it talks about the first who dwell in the, their cities. And it says, And some of the people of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh lived in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem becomes a focus, and then the temple of God becomes a focus. And so we see that Utai from the tribe of Judah uh, had 690 uh, kinsmen that served with him. And from the tribe of Benjamin, Sula, and uh, 956, and of the priests... Uh, we, he says, uh, Jedediah and these descendants of Aaron. And we find this movement of these people focused around the worship of God. Now, some might say, well, how come women's names aren't mentioned in this genealogies? I mean, what's up with that? I mean, is God a, a male chauvinist that he doesn't bring women into this? Well, no, because he made women in his own image. Uh, but some might say, well, men need more encouragement to be worshipers. Uh, there's been uh, some research that shows that, uh, that in any given church, there's probably at least a third more women worshiping than men. Men have a struggle, but I don't think that is why. And while God is calling qualified men to be sacrificial servant representative, God also esteems and calls women to special honor and service. In Genesis uh, chapter 1, or in, in uh, the genealogies in Matthew chapter 1, we, f we see the birth line of Jesus in all the genealogies, and five women are mentioned there, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. But, it, but as, the, as it ends, it says, 
and Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called the Christ. But it's hard to imagine a greater honor than to be the mother of Jesus. But the point of Chronicles 9 is that all of these individuals were focused on one thing, and that is the worship of God in the temple of God. And so we see in verse 13, the 1,760 mighty men for the work of the service of the house of God, the four chief gatekeepers in verse 26 and 27, uh, who were over the treasuries in the house of God and were responsible to be around the house of God, to lodge around the house and to, and to, to watch. Uh, and then we see the Levites in the chambers, you know, the gatekeepers. What was their job? Their job, it says, was to open. They were given the charge to open the gates every morning. And then in the evening, they would close the gates. And there were these four gates around the temple worship uh, on each side. And their job was to, in the morning, to open the gates, and in the evening, to close the gates. In the morning, to open the gates, and the evening, to close the gates. And that's what they they open the gates and they close the gates. And you might think, well, gee, this seems are pretty. What kind of a job is this? Well, in God's economy, it was a very, very important job. And uh, well, they were also called to safeguard the sanctity and the security of the temple. Protect this house. That that particular phrase started back then. They were protecting the house of God. But we see this uh, in verse 31, uh, Matahiah, uh, one of the Levites, was entrusted with making the flat cakes. Well, what kind of a job was that? Well, you know, it was a special calling to, of, uh, of wheat and various uh, grains uh, fine flour mixed with oil, baked on a griddle to be provided with some of the other sacrifices. And uh, someone said it might strike the modern reader as obscure and dull. Perhaps they seem so in the ancient reader, for the ancient reader as well. Nevertheless, the whole work of the sanctuary depended on the faithfulness of these men. And all of God's people may take comfort from the reminder that God both notices and remembers those who faithfully perform routine tasks in the service of him. And so David says, better is one day in, this, in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper, a gatekeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Do we value what God values? Do, are, we, are our hearts in tune with the centrality of worship and making sure that we are supporting worship to the best of our ability to find our call and our place in that. Uh, I was encouraged uh, hearing from Carneal Means, one of our deacons, uh, at a meeting this past week. He, uh, he first started worshiping with us in 1997. 1998, he started to be an usher here at Faith, and then in 2002, he became the head usher, and he's been the head usher for all these years. He's been serving as usher for 18 years, faithfully serving, greeting people, encouraging others. He's not complaining, but he's, he's getting tired. 
he needs help. I, I caught him up. I said, I said, what do you need? He says, I need five more ushers. So maybe some of you out there would like to join and support uh, Carneal and the ushers in being a gate, gatekeeper in the house of God. It's, it's an important work. It's a, a greeter. It's a person, that, the first people that, that people see to welcome them into God's house and his community. Uh, I was encouraged, by the way, that when uh, Cindy came up here last week and appealed for children's workers, nine people responded. What a beautiful picture. I just want to thank those that did respond uh, to support the strength of worship. Um, and yesterday was a great picture. Uh, there was a whole worship music team that gathered together to kind of launch this year, sitting around uh, and just thinking, how can we make worship an excellent experience uh, for God and for God's people? And uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Worship is a big deal to God. The nature of worship, the heart of worship, the centrality of worship. We were made to be worshipers. Uh, we heard from John 4 that uh, while God doesn't need worshipers, he seeks worshipers. So Jesus talks to the woman at the well, and he, and he talks about how the Father is seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. There's no other verse in the Bible that talks about God seeking anyone. But God is seeking worshipers. And uh, John Piper talks about how mission exists because worship doesn't. That worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. And uh, that the goal of missions is to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. And so God has a hunger for worship. And the question is, do we share in that hunger to bring other worshipers uh, to him? But then finally, we see the essential, the essential the essentials for worshiping God. And we see uh, in, this ver in these verses about uh, the gatekeepers had charge of the utensils of service, and that they were responsible to count them uh, and they were, and when they were brought in and taken out. And they were appointed over the furniture and the holy utensils and the fine flour and the wine, the oil, the incense, and the spices. Now, we don't have time to go into all of the elaborate details of this, but you know all of these utensils and what was placed into the temple, these were all essentials for true worship. There was the menorah, the candle, the seven-lit candle, and it represented perfection, the six days of creation and the seventh day in the center for the Sabbath where God would be worshipped. It was a place to be restored towards perfection. Uh, the showbread, there were these 12 huge loaves, by the way. Uh, they were over, it was like a gallon and a quart of flour for each cake. And there was 12 of them representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were to be baked and brought out fresh every Sabbath as an as a offering to God, as an expression of, that of fresh worship, that our hearts are always, that God's people's hearts should be always ready for devotion of giving him fresh worship. And then there was the altar of incense, uh, a special sacred incense that went up as the prayers of the saints. And so all these aspects were a part of bringing uh, true worship, essential worship. Uh, as was mentioned in the passage in John 4, he talked to the Samaritan woman, 
and he corrects the woman about where true worship is. The Samaritans don't know. You don't know what true worship is, but we of the Jews know because, because worship was anchored and grounded in Jerusalem. That was the center of worship. There's a true worship and there's false worship. And Jesus corrected it. The only worship that God accepts is true worship. He's looking for worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth. How can we encourage uh, true worship? Well, you might be here today, and uh, one way is to be a people that's passionate for gathering worshipers to God. Uh, by the way, if, if you don't have anything, if you want to come to our house tonight for, for this discussion on outreach and prayer, just come. Uh, we'd love for you to come regardless of whether you bring anything or not. We just, you know, we're just going to talk about outreach and how we can be a people faithful to the loving people and to the kingdom. Uh, there's also, a, I put a um, paper out in the foyer called uh, Young People Don't, Research Says Young People Don't Want Hip Pastors. Uh, and it talks about a whole point, a bunch of principles for outreach. So we'll talk about some of that. And then the second thing, uh, get connected. If you're not connected, get connected to a worshiping tribe. You had the 12 tribes of Israel. Everybody figured out where their part was in the worship of God. And for you to be a person uh, a, a person of faith uh, in growing in your love for Christ, you need to be vitally connected to a worshiping body uh, and to find your best fit in that. And so I encourage you to, to whether it's here or whether it's somewhere else, but this uh, Wednesday night we have a congregational meeting. Come on out. We're going to do a goals and vision cast, and uh, we would like to welcome you to even just explore that or come to the next uh, the deeper uh, faith discussion next next Sunday. But as we talk about coming to worship, you see all these details, and sometimes it gets kind of overwhelming, doesn't it? When you look at the Old Testament and you see all of the particulars and all of the, all the details of worship. Uh, let me see. Oh, this is interesting. Hey, can you pull it back? Yeah, this is I never knew this before, by the way. But this is the uh, tribes of Israel centered around worship in the wilderness. You know, when the Israelites went out, of, out from Egypt into the wilderness, and the tabernacle where the, was the center of the worship, which is that's, where, that's the tabernacle right in the center of Israel, these are the 12 tribes of Israel surrounding, uh, surrounding the worship. Uh, the Levites... And the priests were all around taking care of the worshiping of God's people. Um, but can you see a cross in there? Well, I didn't never realize this, but the, you know, they number the tribes. And there's three tribes uh, on the east, which is Judah, uh, Issachar, and Zebulun. And that amounts to close to 200,000. And then the other tribes on the, this side, it's about 150,000. And the top is about 100,000. So if you just put all those people on those different legs, you have like this image of a cross in the wilderness with the center of worship right in the center. It's just, to me, it's kind of an amazing image. Jesus is in the center of our worship. 
Jesus is the one that allows us to worship because we can't fulfill all of those requirements to come before a holy God. We don't have the full wisdom and the light. Jesus is the light of the world. We don't have hearts that are always ready to worship fresh with God. But Jesus says, I am your, you know, send me. He's always ready to do his Father's will. He's always fresh in his service. And Jesus is now interceding on our behalf. His prayers go up. Our prayers are often weak. But in Christ, in Christ, he loves us. In Christ, he forgives us. In Christ, he comes after us. One of the great things about Chronicles is that it doesn't focus on sin. It focuses on a Savior. It focuses on the Savior who has come to gather his people. And there is no king in that Israel. There's King Cyrus, but that's really not their heart king. They're waiting for the heart king. But the heart king has come. And he, he comes and he reminds us that we are a beloved people and that he comes to encourage us to come and to his table and to be reminded of his eternal love. Uh, who is this table for? This table is for anyone who has acknowledged Jesus Christ as their Savior, who are seeking to repent. This is not for saints who are perfect. This is for sinners who are repenting. And so if you're here seeking to repent and you're seeking faithfulness in his church, he welcomes you uh, to this table. If you haven't done this, I encourage you to pass and pray that God would reveal himself to you more fully. I'd like to ask the officers to come forward. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took the bread and he said, This bread is my body broken for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We thank you for your faithfulness uh, to your people. We thank you that in our trespasses and sins, uh, when we really didn't, we're so confused and disoriented, you come and you remind us that you love us. And Lord, we pray that you would remind us in this meal now how deeply you love us personally, that you would, you would, you would fill us with your spirit, that we might walk out of here with, with deeper understanding and deeper grace and deeper power of loving you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, help us to live within the realities of this amazing grace. Lord, inflame our hearts to be full of your spirit, that we might be a people that welcome others into your kingdom, that all Israel, that all of your church could come to worship you, and we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing the doxology. And now may the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each of you now and forevermore. Amen.